Welcome to Gray Awakenings, a podcast covering the gray areas of life. Hello, hello. Hey, hello. Hello. So, <laughs> this is Hannah Gray. My pronouns are she and they. And my fun fact of the day is I'm sitting next to my old professor from college. And I'm Adrian Gray. My pronouns are he, him. And my fun fact for the day is I'm wearing a harness tomorrow to Pride. I'm Amanda Drew. My pronouns are she and they. And my fun fact of the day is that I got a fresh buzz cut this morning. I'm Jeff Ivanoni. My pronouns are he, him. And my fun fact is I've been a vegetarian since I was 15 years old. Nice. I started when I was 14, so similar. What? <laughs> I went? Oh, it was like one year. It's fine. Um, so we're going to talk about a lot of different things today, but um, Dr. Jeff is a pro at queer history, so um, we're definitely going to talk about queer history, which is perfect, because our Pride Weekend in Rochester is this weekend, so it's a whoop perfect whoop. way to like kick it off. So I want you to just kind of talk about yourself a little bit and tell us who you are, your credentials, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I am an educator, an activist scholar, a writer, a community historian, and I focus on um, queer and LGBTQ history. Um, and lately, a lot of my work um, focuses on Western New York LGBTQ history, so kind of getting us outside of that mainstream narrative where when we talk about gay history it's just like new york and san francisco that's very cool because i'm wondering do you know like why is pride in rochester this particular time like i wonder if there's like a specific reason like why honestly July, i have june? no no clue it's always been the second week of june as far as i know June? Or July? July? I'm sorry. What I month think, are we in? <laughs> yeah, I think that, honestly, I never knew, but I noticed this year that cities kind of I, around here, I guess, are on different weekends. They'll, like, so stagger like, it, yeah. So within the vicinity of, like, New York and the, the states surrounding us, um, all the different cities are on different weekends. So I guess there's not enough cities, or there's too many cities for one month, so I think that's why. I don't know. Too many gays, not enough I'm parades. Yeah. I'm yeah. wondering if, like, back in the day, right, when in, uh, like, Pride celebrations were smaller, the state, like, staggered around when New York City was having their Pride, which is the last weekend in June, right? So, like, people could go to their smaller local Pride, but maybe then they would want to go to NYC, too. That's probably a factor. I'm sure that there's some reason behind it, and... We just haven't, we haven't dug deep enough, right? <laughs> um, do you know when New York City started their pride and like why and how it came about? I do. Um, how concise do you want me to be? <laughs> okay, I can hold this. I think it's funny how you're, you're like being my, my, um, my mic stand. So, I mean, one of the things that like everyone knows about queer history, at least queer American history, are the Stonewall Inn riots, right? So, um, which occurred on June 28th of 1969, and the first Pride 
demonstration. So I'm not going to say parade because it really wasn't a, a parade. It wasn't yeah. um, celebratory at that time. Um, it was a march. It was a demonstration, right? You're demonstrating against something. You're marching um, for something. Um, so on June 28th of 1969, um, the Stonewall Inn, which was a mafia-run gay bar in Greenwich Village in New York City, wa- was raided. Um, and so part of the backstory of that is, um, first, after um, Prohibition ends in the United States in, oh, I might get the date wrong, I want to say 1920, um, New York State establishes a state liquor authority, which is like the governing body to um, regulate alcohol. And they could close down a bar if it was considered a disorderly premises. And they considered, oh. yes. And the gays love to be disorderly. Right? Or people, people <laughs> love to see the gays as disorderly, too. <laughs> Like, it's all, that's also a lot of, like, perception. Like, we like to see the gays as disorderly. We like to yes. see people who are yes. marginalized as disorderly. Yeah, so... Super eye rolls yeah. over here. <laughs> so they said, basically, you know, if you have gay people in a bar, especially if they're dancing together in same-gender couples... Oh, my goodness. ...that that was a disorderly premises and that you could close down the bar, essentially, because you could revoke the the liquor license. Um, So we have that, and then also um, the mayor of New York City at the time, John Lindsay, was running for re-election. So as part of his re-election campaign, he wanted to clean up corruption in New York City. So part of that involved targeting the gay bars. So during this particular raid, right, because this is a common occurrence, um, the community ends up fighting back against the police. And this, you know, makes huge headlines and um, galvanizes gay people across the country, um, across the world, even though it's more complicated um, than that. And so coming out of that uh, intense energy of Stonewall in um, New York City. Before 1969, um, early gay activists would um, do this demonstration that was called the Annual Reminder Day, which would take place on July 4th in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, right? Because that's the place uh, signing of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Liberty ah. Bell. Um, they would pick it for gay rights. And they called it the annual reminder. So an annual reminder that gay people had second class, not first class citizenship. Um, So after Stonewall, um, there's a proposal made by activists from um, New York City to change that annual reminder day into an annual demonstration to coincide with the Stonewall uprising. And they called it Christopher Street Liberation Day because the Stonewall was on... Um, Christopher Street and so the first right that's considered to be the first pride Um, there was also parallel um, marches in Los Angeles and San Francisco in in June of 1970 Um, and so that that's really what our modern pride is is coming out of that that early demonstration that's very cool awesome um so when when we see this kind of development into what um, what we see Pride as now, I mean, Pride now is like 
way less of a demonstration. Mm-hmm. Still, anytime that queer people walk into public spaces, it's a demonstration. Um, but it's very much a celebration now we're, we're trying really hard to celebrate instead of demonstrate instead um so how do you where do you feel like do you do you have a feeling of where that flipped to more of a celebration instead yeah. of a demonstration you're like yes i've got it <laughs> and not only um is it a celebration but it's also become very corporate oh yeah yeah and so I'm wondering, so in, in Buffalo, where I'm from, um, our pride is sponsored by a uh, bank, M&T Bank Corporation. Do you know who, who, who are the sorry. sponsors of M&T's Pride in Rochester? sponsors the pride? Yeah, M&T Bank. Is I the, didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, Rochester Pride is, I mean, I guess I don't know who sponsors it, but I know Out Alliance runs it. I guess I don't know yeah, who sponsors. Yeah, I don't know who the sponsor is either. Maybe I know that I, there, I'm oh, sure I know the that there are multiple them. sponsors yeah. because, like, Positive Force Movement is sponsoring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Red Fern, I believe, sponsors. Like, um, Jaybird Apparel is sponsoring. But I believe that's I more for, Google like, it. their their positions in the parade yeah. than actual sponsoring of the that's event. There's a corporation that's yeah. um, you know, giving the money and then you have like the Out Alliance and other right, uh, people who are who are organizing. Um, yeah. So while Hannah's looking that up, um, it really starts to, f- to flip in the 90s, right? And so several, several reasons for that. Um, we're coming out of the HIV AIDS epidemic and they're starting to be effective treatment for HIV and AIDS. Um, so gay sexuality and um, AIDS is starting to be seen as less stigmatized. Gay rights is becoming a more mainstream issue. And so part of that then is um, corporations are seeing the LGBTQ community, and it's right around that time we start using LGBT or LGBTQ um, as a consumer market that that they could market towards. Um, You know, there's a lot of um, stats that beginning in the 90s, um, corporations start to have like LGBT specific marketing teams and how much their profits, right, skyrocket by by targeting us as a consumer market and that's when it really um starts to become a celebration and much more corporate at at this moment where um and on the one hand it's a positive thing right becoming more mainstream having more visibility but then also right is that to what extent do you actually care about the lived experiences of lgbtq people and how much is is that about um, making money or selling to us or right, selling rainbow theme products. Right. Rainbow capitalism yes. versus actual, uh, like giving a shit. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that like you'll have like your, um, cover photo or your photo on Facebook be like, like with the, f- with the rainbow and this is like a corporation and then literally July 1st, it changes. It's back down. To normal. Yeah. Um, so the Rochester pride sponsors are constellation brands, Trillium health, bank of America, the city of Rochester, James R. Moran foundation, TGW Yelp and Stolly and AT&T and the bachelor forum. Oh my goodness. Wegmans, literally so many. Like I'm just scrolling through. Oh my God. There's way too many. I'm not going to Okay. So multiple way many. 
Yeah, I just feel like uh, like that's it's so many people who are trying to like uh, jump in on like the coolness of pride as as just marketing and as like uh, just a capitalist sort of thing. That doesn't I don't know that doesn't sit right with me. I wonder if um, do we think that some of the the rainbow capitalism and the corporate marketing is becoming so obvious that it's turning people off and maybe we're starting to see a push the other way uh, because mm-hmm. in some um, cities like in, in New York City they have like the queer liberation march and I think in um, Philadelphia they have a separate march that's like a pride for the people um, I wonder if if we feel that like um, queer people are starting to get turned off by that and that there's going to be pushback and we're going to go in a different direction. I personally have seen that a lot this year where people are calling out corporations and Mm -hmm. especially with the use of social media, it's super huge in how we like perceive pride right now. Um, at least like on a corporate level. Um, and people are supporting more of like the local grassroots, like, yeah. Um, companies or caring about like actually asking, but who do you employ? Mm -hmm. But where does Mm -hmm. your money go when you're donating? But how are you treating your employees? Because these all matter when you're considering putting your money into corporation, even if it's just a t-shirt that says like, yay, I'm gay, like, or I'm queer or love pride, you know, like these are important things and they're, they're obviously becoming important. I think that it's super cool. I feel like a lot of people also in the queer and trans community, I, I'm kind of noticing a lot of people don't show up to pride anymore because I'm curious, do you think Pride is turning into, like, a straight person's kind of walking around almost? Or, like, up, up space, kind of like, like, we talked about Tilt Nightclub that used to be out here in Rochester where it was, like, the space for, like, drag queens and drag kings to perform. It was supposed and to be the And straight bachelorette space. parties. Yeah. <laughs> like. So, and it kind of took over where, like, it was mostly straight people in the crowd and it was supposed to be this queer space. And I'm curious if, like, Pride, because capitalism has kind of got its hands around Pride, it's got its claws in it, is it becoming more of this ooh, let's go to Pride as a straight person for entertainment, for fun, to, like, see these performers, to see these people, you know? I don't know. I think a lot, too, like, what I'm finding is it's not only that, but it's, like, a lot of the um, LGBT culture is changing. It's not so, like, a lot of people are starting to find more of this uh, self-care, and there's more access to it. And so, like, I think... more people are not wanting to go to the celebration because uh, before it was, you know, a place where you could go get drunk and mingle and have fun. And I think a lot of the drinking and like uh, more, more of the soberness is being uh, put into the community. And so like people are less likely to go because they don't want to be around that sort of thing, you know, like they don't want to be around drugs or alcohol because before they had an issue with that. And like a lot of the culture struggles with that. And so trying to find sober spaces to celebrate is almost very hard. And I think on the note of self-care as well for gay men in particular, there's a lot of diet culture that's caught up in pride. Like you see gay men talking about, oh, I need to, like, go to the gym because I need to get my pride body 
So mm-hmm. I feel comfortable, you know, being at Pride and taking my shirt off or whatever, and people won't judge me. And that seems to me completely contradictory to the message of what um, Pride should actually be. And the same thing, right? If, if you're sober it sh- or you're in recovery, it should be you can come as you are to that space. Yeah. And like, I think I've mentioned this once to you guys, um, but I've never been to a Pride. And I haven't been to a Pride because I have not felt welcome at Pride, um, especially since like when I first started talking about like Pride and my friends were going to Pride, I was a bisexual woman. And it was, I got so much shit for being a bisexual woman. Like, oh, you're just a, you're just a fake lesbian or you're just a straight girl who like kind of is curious. Um, so I didn't feel welcome there. And then when I got older, I noticed that my friends were going and they were getting completely fucking hammered. And like, um, for, at least for me, there was a lot of like heroin use that was also there. And so that was just something that I was completely turned off from. Um, and I know that like the, the heroin is not like normal. Uh, that was my circle of friends, unfortunately. But, um, but still it was something that I just wasn't like, like, yeah, I'm proud of who I am, but I can't be proud of who I am and be put in a position where I'm, where I feel like I need to get drunk or I need to get high or I'm not accepted because I'm only bi, you know? Yeah, I've only personally been to two. I've been once in Buffalo and once in Rochester. I personally, like, don't... And the Batavia Pride. Oh, yeah, and Batavia Pride. Yay! Just talked about it last, last time. But um, I also, like, I don't know. I guess I don't equate the Pride Parade to, like, drugs and alcohol. I don't know. I've just never looked at it that way. Yeah. Um, but I'm also not big in drugs and alcohol. So I guess, like, yeah. maybe that's why. And that's I, just where my friends group was yeah. at the time. And, like, I think that's where I've just kept it in my head. Yeah. Which is, is on me. But Because like, I know a lot of, like, queer spaces are typically bars. So I know that, like, especially the queer community really struggles with finding spaces that aren't in bars and like thankfully we have a few spaces like that in Rochester and I think there's probably a few in Buffalo but um at the end of the day it's like I I mean I guess I just don't equate pride parade to that but I could see where that struggle is for other people for sure yeah I mean it's not really so much the parade that I see it it's more of like the after events so like the events that you go to after it's always like the drag shows which is absolutely amazing i think the drag shows are awesome but it's always in bars and so there's always alcohol and drugs there and then like there's the little festival after too where you know it's catered and like there's food there's beer there's alcohol like and there's the there's so many places that you can just like stow away and like take a little puff of weed or like you know, do other things. So and also I don't wanna like shame (laughs) anyone who do I don't wanna shame anyone listening who do like if you do drink or smoke weed or anything like that. Like you do your boo boo. But um I'm curious kinda tie it back to um queer history. Like Jeff, like what in your studies like has like have queer spaces often been in bars and like why and why do you think that is and do you ever see it kind of staggering away from there or like what is your perspective in a historical way I guess with queer spaces having a lot of drugs and alcohol and all this stuff yeah I mean if we think 
historically um, it, what it was like for queer people before Stonewall, before the gay liberation movement. Um, so we have like four major fronts of oppression. So religious, right? Queer people are sinners. Um, social, being gay, being queer is socially stigmatized. You know, you're considered a, a social pariah. Um, it's something that's not acceptable um, in public. Um, legal, right? There's laws that are actually criminalizing um, gay sexuality. And then um, medical, right? Being gay is considered um, a mental illness. And then right, a bit a bit later, um, when trans identities, right, are, are medicalized and, and entered into the, um, the DSM. So, like, that's the situation that um, people are existing within. There's not a lot of spaces to socialize, especially, I mean, um, public spaces. Like, before the gay liberation movement um, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, it's unthinkable to have something like a gay community center um, or, right, you, you might not... Even in your 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 home, you might not you know be in a place where you feel comfortable expressing that part of yourself or having people over. Um, so especially in um, you know working class cultures, bars were the only space where people could congregate, could come together, could form community, and and that's why um, it's such a big issue when the the bars start to be. Um, to be targeted and in you know New York State in particular um, that also starts happening because in 1959 um, Nelson Rockefeller was elected governor of New York and like one of his big campaign promises with that was that he was gonna um, clean up corruption in state police departments so a lot of times um, these gay bars were staying open because the police were corrupt and they were taking payoffs from the bar owner, right? So w we're going to pay you off and then you're not going to label this a disorderly premises and right. take away our liquor license. Um, and so that starts to change when Rockefeller has this anti-corruption right, campaign. And, then, and in, in New York State, um, in particular, we really start to see the gay bars being targeted and you know i think that that's um part of the reason why something like a stonewall happens in new york and right not um somewhere else in the country even though there were there were other um similar confrontations but such a big right thing is blowing up and right in new york state that's really interesting can you kind of touch on the like kind of relationship to the police and queer spaces nowadays Ooh. i know it's a touchy subject i'm sure we all can kind of like tune into that but i'm curious with a historian perspective well, i think it was very interesting that um during june we saw um it was like a police chief from new york city i think maybe from the the um, precinct that had raided the stonewall inn perhaps um, apologizing on the half behalf of the police, right, for raiding the bar in 1969, mm -hmm. and I thought that that um, 
was to a certain extent a meaningless gesture because police are still targeting queer people in public, in particular queer people of color and gender nonconforming and, and trans people. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to have that apology for what you did in 1969, you also need to say, what are you doing right now because queer people are still being criminalized by the criminal justice system. Right. It's like saying, I'm sorry, but we're still going to do it. (laughs) Instead of, I'm sorry, and this is how I'm going to fix it. Well, it's more just like publicity. Like, okay. Right. Because, like, I feel like a lot lot of, like, um, pride spaces, I mean, police were always there, you know? And, like, this year, I feel like in particular, people were more outspoken about, like, no, you're not invited, especially it being um, the Stonewall anniversary, you know? So it's, like, it's, like, where where is this fine line of, like, are they accepted here or I don't even know, you know, like, is it, is this a space where police really need to be at or should be at? Probably not. And well, the thing is like, do you allow your oppressor at your like celebrate? Like, do we allow Britain to come over here for our 4th of July celebrations? Like do, you know, they, um, police were one of the major, um, major things with, like the Stonewall riots, like that we pushed against police brutality. We pushed against like uh, police brutality against people of color and sex workers. And so, um, how comfortable can we be as a queer community, letting people who have notoriously done that back into the scene? And I guess we should probably um, talk about uh, in general. I guess, like, just for people who don't know the relationship between queer people, trans people, people of color, you know, with the police, I feel like we should kind of touch on that um, a little bit just because, I mean, we know being part of the community and, like, stuff we follow, but, like, some of our listeners might not know kind of the history with that and also the current up-to-date police relationships. I know they're flawed and we touched on that, but should we talk about, like, specific things? I think I think that it could be good to talk about them. I know that it, I do know that it's a touchy subject and we you know don't want to exclude anyone and we don't want to say like anything super negative about the police system, but we have to touch on it if we're going to talk about it, you know. But what at I the mean? same time, this is great awakenings. We talk about the gray areas of life and you know, so it's like we have to talk about this and it's and it's it's hard because I mean, this is vulnerable to talk about because people get very defensive when you go off you go after or you talk against or say things against institutions that hold so much power you know yep. oh, I just spit everywhere but thankfully Yummy. there's a computer in front of me <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's it's very vulnerable talking against such an institution and some of our listeners might be in the police in the police or have family members and it's not when we're talking about systems of oppression, it's talking about the system of oppression. It's not necessarily individuals. Individuals have the power to change what's happening in the system of oppression. However, we're talking about the system of police force, p- police oppression, you know? Yeah. Yes. So I think. Yeah. No, I, I, pinpoint. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I know it's hard because it's like, shit, like we're really going to talk about this, but I we're think gonna we We're going to talk about it. We got to talk about it. We have to. And yeah. plus people need to know 
what happens you know i yeah. keep spitting i'm like very like feeling this apparently at I'm least you're spitting. hydrated it is hot today you've got some <laughs> spit to go <laughs> sure i'm not like dry pasty i guess pasty can't be in your mouth okay i don't know i'm gonna hand this mic over <laughs> yeah so so jeff if you want to um give us just like a little history if um you can share about like how um how the police did affect stonewall or yeah. the the gay rights movement in general yeah well you know and um hannah's point that there's a difference between systems of oppression and individual action um why wouldn't law enforcement target queer and gender non-conforming people because they're socialized in a society that's positioning us as inferior and then there's also laws that are empowering them to do so right um so in new york state there was actually a statute from 1845 Ooh, taking it back okay (laughs) yeah um that said um Persons appearing in public had to wear at least three articles of gender-appropriate attire. In other words, attire that corresponded to the gender that was listed on your legal identity documents, right? So that was used to um, criminalize trans and gender nonconforming people in public in particular, right? And that's one of the things that... Um, they would do at bar raids. They would, you know, line people up and look at their IDs, and then is your presentation matching what it says on your driver's license or or your your documents or yeah. um, whatever? And then we also have um, laws against sodomy, which mm-hmm. right is this kind of vague term that. Um, was used to criminalize gay sexuality and it's basically um referring to you know any sort of um sex act that doesn't result in procreation right but or at least the possibility of procreation yeah but of course it's unequally applied um towards queer people versus straight people right um and then there were also laws against loitering or against vagrancy or lewd and lascivious behavior um that were often used to target um gay men in particular who um, were soliciting sex in public because right again you don't have a lot of spaces where you can meet people and so often that's happening in um, a public space that's therefore easier to criminalize than happening mm-hmm. in um, a private space. Yeah, or an establishment. Yeah, interesting. So then um, you said that the, at least the first statute about <laughs> gender-appropriate clothing, yeah. uh, that started in 1845. When did that... Do, is that gone, or does that still apply? Has that... I mean... It's gone. Okay. I'm forgetting <laughs> when. However, I think the effects of it are still felt. Absolutely. Because we yeah. know that not only people of color, but also gender nonconforming people are um, unequally targeted by, Absolutely. by law enforcement. Yeah. So I guess um, I think we have to kind of talk about... Um, trans women and especially trans women of color who are targeted by 
police. Um, nowadays, I'm sure it happened for a long time, but I know it's currently happening, um, and especially around trans women in uh, sex work, you know, and how um, there's this like cycle of kind of this abuse cycle with these people who are just trying to make a living because um, unfortunately, especially trans women and trans women of colors, color, it's very hard to get a job, you know, yeah. like not many people aren't offering these people jobs. So sex work, like unfortunately, a conventional job, like sex yeah, work exactly. is work. It is like, work. Yes, yeah, absolutely. A conventional job, yes. like a nine to five. Yeah. You know? So like, um, it's difficult to become employed. And then, so like sex work has kind of been this occupation for trans women and trans women of color that they had access to. So mm -hmm. it's like, but police officers target sex work. And then unfortunately these people are being targeted at, um, rates that are, I don't know. Oh Astronomical. Gotta, yeah. So yeah. it's like, it's, I feel like we have to talk about it because there's that cycle of abuse where, okay, we're going to target this person. We're going to arrest you. Um, and you can literally get arrested. You can just be walking down the street as a trans woman um, and have a condom in your pocket. And that's criminalizing enough for you to be arrested. So it's like, is that like legally criminalizing enough? Because I know that like, there's a lot of ways to skirt around law. I mean, people yeah. you can be arrested for resisting arrest. So like we can't, I think that, okay, so <laughs> where I got this information was um, actual trans women talking at a trans conference um, a couple years ago, and okay. they were talking about their experience with sex work and um, decriminalizing it and how it would help them. So, like, the, this woman shared a story about, like, how she was literally just walking down the street, was not working, was not actively going to find, find some sex work, anything like that. She was like, I was literally going to pick up my Chinese food. And I was walking down the street and a cop stopped me because they saw my appearance. They thought I was doing like doing that. And I had a condom in my pocket and that was enough for them. I was up to criminalize this action because it it was showing that she had the intent of seeking out sex or something like that for oh money. So because she had a condom in her pocket or her purse or something yeah. like that. So which really comes down to I feel like like legally having a condom in your pocket is not illegal that's not a crime it's not a crime to walk down the street as a trans person with a condom in your pocket but like institutionally that's criminal and like i think that there's a huge difference between what is legally criminal and what is legally okay or not okay um versus what is institutionally okay and not okay and i think that's where the that line kind of gets blurred especially with with police presences um because there's so many things that huh, uh like like sodomy like n not wearing gender appropriate clothing um that is so ambiguous when we're looking at people who are just standing on a street that it really comes down to um like the institution of a police presence, the institution of a police force. And then I always personally question the people who decide to jump into an institution like that. And so if we have the idea that a certain group of people is deviant, 
whether their you know whatever their actions are um the criminal justice system can find ways to read right deviance or illegality into whatever it is laws are written so that they're they're readable from many angles yeah which is a little ridiculous. But so I'm curious because, like, um, you kind of bringing up the fact that that was a law in 1845 with the clothing and stuff like that. A lot of people think that queerness and being trans is this modern thing that came out of nowhere. I'm curious, like, what would you say to this person or, like, what could we tell people to make them believe us that this has been around for a long time? Like forever. Well, gender nonconformity has always existed. Um, fluidity and sexuality has always existed. I think where it gets a little bit tricky and uh, where these um, conversations can sometimes be difficult is we've only been using the word transgender since the 1990s, but it doesn't mean that um, people who now identify um, that way or we kind of place under the umbrella or within that that category, that people who have had similar experiences um, haven't always existed, right? Um, and so I think uh, think sometimes people like use that as a way to um, discredit queer and gender nonconforming people. Well, you're just inventing these words, so therefore it's a recent phenomenon. Um, but no, we're creating a word to describe an experience that has existed for a long time, and it's important that act of language creation is important because then it makes that way of being in the world more concrete and more legitimate. Yeah, it's definitely um, providing, like, validity. You know what I mean? Like, air quotes on validity, because you're always valid. But, like, society doesn't really see you as valid until you can place a name on yourself or put yourself into a box or um, give yourself a label. And I think it's really interesting, too, that you brought up that... um, Like, they haven't had names for, like, and we're just talking Western society. Mm -hmm. Like, they have always had names in Eastern societies for people who are gender nonconforming or for people who are um, transgender or for people who are uh, third gender or somewhere between the male and female binary or not on the binary at all. Like, there have always been words, and just because the United States has not used them doesn't mean that they haven't been there and it's just it's a narrow way to look at it like oh well trans is a new word for me so it's always been a new word right we never thought of it before yeah and that's a great point because if we look um globally we could maybe even make the argument that having a system where there's only like two valid options for gender man and woman is in fact not the norm right no, it's it. I don't. I personally don't think that it is. At least, you know, I'm from the very, very small amount of research that I've done, considering how much research is out there. You know. Yeah, and it's it's so hard when you look 
cross-culturally and like we are we are very far behind when it comes to comparing um so I think that like it's super cool hearing like about all this queer history and like I wish I would have learned it in school um yeah it's like (laughs) how do you think like what do you think would be different about society our experiences all the stuff if we learned queer history like or where do we access queer history because our we we all know that our history in schools and the educational system is whitewashed it's straight wash it's heteronormative it's all these things um like I don't know I guess I'm just curious like what you think our experiences would be different you know all of us I want to add on to your question. Maybe we could, it would be interesting to talk about, um, did we learn anything about queer history in school in terms of our education, right? What are our individual experiences with that? No, just no. I literally didn't learn anything until I got out of college and started like deciding to research that stuff or um, hanging out with a group of people who... did have that sort of education because they chose it in college I mean for me I there was no queer history at all it was always like we went through this war and this war it was always about like different wars that we have gone through and it was just like I don't want to learn about this because this is boring as hell and then like no sex education you know it's just like the same thing you know, all heteronormative all white all cis you know it's, it's just like there was absolutely nothing there so yeah I had nothing either um the first time I ever heard queer history was in one of your classes so um and I chose that major and I actually didn't even I wasn't even in women's and gender studies major until after I took your class so your Dr. Jeff's class was my first it was intro to women's studies, I think, at the time. We've come a long way from here. We had a gender to it. I think it should just change the gender, but it's fine. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Well, now it's, and now it's called Topics and Gender Studies, yeah. So we did change it. Yay. Yeah. But I, um, I had one class in graduate school where and it was just kind of like a, a you know foundational American history class where we read a book about the history of sexuality in America and it wasn't even specifically queer it was just right sexuality and um, general and then everything that I've learned I've had to to do that on my own to to build on right the formal training that that I got because there there wasn't right a class that was you know specifically queer or, or LGBTQ history and I think it's it's interesting now to see that um, so California and I believe New Jersey I might be wrong but I think it's New Jersey have actually um, passed laws that LGBTQ history has to be a part of the state education curriculum so those schools have to learn something um about it and i think you know new york we need to get with the program because it would make sense for us to have that because the state 
has been such a leader in terms of mm-hmm. gay rights issues nationally, it should be part of the, the yeah. education curriculum. I, I have heard um, through the grapevine of like somebody who works in like the health department that New York State is working like they're in the works of doing a sex ed class that is inclusive, but you know, as far as like inclusive to us, how far would they actually go with that? You know? Um, but I think that's definitely something that like we would have to do more research into as, as to like what they're planning on, but it is something that I've heard they're working on. Yeah. And that, that's a great point because I think we need history and we also rate representation in that sense, and then we also need the inclusive sex ed as part of the curriculum. And I think it would be interesting to do a um, study about like students' self-esteem wh- or right their um, well-being or their their mental health after they were able to learn about these things, right? In the curriculum, did they have more positive mental health outcomes? And I would say probably yes yeah i mean there have been studies in other fields that have shown that when representation is there in a classroom at the end of the semester those mental health sources do go up so i mean it would only make sense that it would correlate i feel like as someone who grew up in a very rural part of a, a state and someone who was not exposed to queerness until college I, I can even view how my mental health changed after I stumbled upon a Jeff class, you know, and then like I learned about the major and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing, you know. So like I, I remember just feeling so seen and so heard and I was so intrigued because it was nothing like I've ever heard before. And it was like like looking at things in a different way and like just like sharing this history on and I'm pretty sure. I'm curious what book you were referring to that you read because I'm curious if that was in your class that we took and I have that on my bookshelf if it is the same one. Uh, it's called uh, Intimate Matters, oh. A History of Sexuality in America by uh, John D'Amelio and Estelle Friedman. Yeah. yeah, we had that in one of your classes and I have it on my bookshelf still, just say it. So um, right when you said that, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I read that uh, <laughs> in your class. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I guess it just like as someone who experienced that, it's just so enlightening. And I feel like if I if I heard this as a kid in school, that would that would have changed a lot for me. And um, in particular, and I know a lot of other people, too, for sure. And I'm yeah. curious, like bringing up like rural kind of like ruralness, apparently, yeah. like um, I guess like queerness and like, okay, I guess in general, if we do get this education, this historical education in schools, we get this uh, inclusive sex ed in schools. Is it only going to be in the schools in the city or is it going to be in rural, rural, rural (laughs) schools, you know? So I'm like curious about like the difference between queerness and stuff in rural places and cities. I actually think it's super interesting that you're asking this question because we've talked about our, um, our experiences with sex ed in high school and me coming from like a suburban like community with like 500 in my graduating class I did get a little bit more of an inclusive sex ed than you guys did so it's so interesting um, like I think that obviously we hit populated areas first but that just seems arbitrary 
to me. But um, <laughs> but um, I still never got any like queer history. Again, still very like whitewashed, but be interesting to see. I'm curious. I think part of it too is um, if it gets passed through like law that it's supposed to be taught you know any sort of state state school is going to be required to teach it but I think really it comes down to who's teaching it as well you know because if you've got somebody who is very religious or against um, the gay community they might graze over it but you're not going to get anything that is like adequate and um, good for um, the students to learn um so really it just comes down yeah to that yeah and that um if you know legislation like that is passed teachers are probably going to need training about how to implement that into Mm -hmm. the curriculum because it's probably not um a part of what they learned in their education or even their daily knowledge yeah or um another change with that is is going to have to be you know in, in terms of um getting your education degree the queer issues are going to have to become part of that um, curriculum for for teacher certification yeah i just think that like um so when you guys were talking i was thinking (laughs) about how when we learned about like um Christopher Columbus coming over and uh, discovering America and um, that like the spin that our teachers and our professors not so much my professors uh, as far as my experience in college when they talked about it they were like we did fucked up shit guys like (laughs) they were really good about it but in high school you know it's like um, it was very much so sugar coated and like trail of tears like let's put a little positive spin on that one so i can only imagine like the spins that um teachers especially in high schools like middle schools high schools would be able to put on queer history um in such a way that like i feel like i got a false history of like the history that i yeah of america that i got in high school because of the way that it was presented well i feel like it it's you know i mean the educational system is standardized it's right. it's they're only allowed to say so much and they and it's like education system and all the information we have through it was built by people in a specific way for a reason so like they want us to only know this so we can be the best you know so it's like why and like I that's why I'm like will this ever happen like this sounds so good in theory but will this ever happen like I look at my high school although I did get to a, a great view it, like they have a GSA now and like I'm like wow that warms my heart because that's amazing and then they have like um they I don't know, like the GSA, like made the Batavia Pride happen, like parade happen and like all that. And Mm -hmm. that like makes me so happy. So I'm like, cool, good things are happening in my old towns and stuff like that. But can I really see my history teachers in high school talking about queer history? And like, do we even trust them with our history? Like, you know, like, I don't know. So I'm like, is this going to even happen or 
would it even be beneficial because of how they would portray it? I don't know. I could kind of see it like be similar to what they do to people of color and black people and how they're like, oh, let us tell, let's talk about this really sad story, you know, and like, and portray you like this, but they also portrayed like the slaves being happy and singing and dancing, you know, that's not realistic. They were slaves. Like I, do we even trust them with our history? I don't know. That's my perspective. I don't know. I just, you can, I have a separate story that I want. Okay. So let me just real fast. So I remember, I think it was in like second or third grade and I'm first starting to learn about, it's the first like time that I remember learning about, Christopher Columbus and I came home and I was like daddy (laughs) the coolest thing did you know that Christopher Columbus discovered America and there were already people here and my dad yelled at me yelled that is not what happened what are they teaching you we killed all the Indians and this is what actually happened he's yelling at me about it I mean like maybe maybe not the best like method (laughs) of delivery (laughs) but like that was, I remember, I used to, I obviously, obviously still remember it, what, seven, six, seven years old, you know what I mean? So um, I think that a lot of it is going to come down to, like, what kind of education we can give our children as, like, queer parents and as straight parents, too, you know what I mean? Um, it's just our education system only takes us so far, and then parenting takes us the rest of the way. Um, as far as like high school, like not even talking about college, like college is another level. <laughs> it's a bit a different beast, but like, I just wanted to share that little tidbit. <laughs> and I think if we add, you know, queer history to the curriculum, if it's done in a shallow way, that's almost more offensive than not having it at all be there at all right if it's you know just stonewall and we talk about it for five minutes or because that's what everyone knows like with my students now i kind of do a um a pre-test at the beginning of the semester and like test what they know about lgbtq history and the thing that everyone knows is stonewall and some people just know the name they don't know like what happened or why it was significant um, you know, there's a lot, or maybe people know Harvey Milk, right? But but there's a lot more there than just Stonewall and, and, and Harvey Milk. And, you know, I think also it's important to recognize that queer history didn't just happen in New York City and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So, like, what about the student who's living in a rural community who's living in the Midwest and the South and the, the middle of the country. And they're like, okay, like Stonewall is really cool. You know, really cool that um, Harvey Milk got elected as an out gay man in the late seventies to the San Francisco board of supervisors. But what does that mean for my life as a, you know, queer teen in Kansas or, um, or something like that? Um, you know, and I remember being like very angry when I was like, what? There's like queer history and there was a gay rights movement. And, and then, you know, even angrier when I was like, there was a gay, gay rights movement in Buffalo. There was a gay rights movement in Western New York that it wasn't just, you know, in New York city, a, a San Francisco thing. Cause the way that we keep knowledge from people, Right, that could could knowledge help. Knowledge is power. Uh, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Um, and it's different for us because like if we think about you know people who are um, racial or ethnic minorities, for example, for the most part, they are probably growing up in a family that is having the same cultural experience as them and can teach them about their culture. Um, that's more often than not not the case with queer people. So we have to like get our culture elsewhere. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I also, so you, you mentioned before we started um, that you had found some interesting information about the beginning of the Rochester movement. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how Rochester got its start with um, with whatever whatever it was called gay gay rights activism mm-hmm. or um, a pride alliance or how did we get started here sure um, and I don't know that that much um, but I'll tell you what I know that's and, okay. I bet um, that it's more than anyone knows right now <laughs> <laughs> So um, one of the things that's really cool is that Rochester has one of the oldest continuous LGBTQ publications in the country, The Empty Closet. Wayo. Um, that the first issue was in 1971. And um, it's still around. I think it's produced by the Out Alliance now and um it's archived and uh, digitized at the university of rochester and so i think you can go online and there's like 400 something uh, issues that 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 you can look at and um so, so in 1971 there was a march on albany for gay rights and it was the first um march on a state capital for gay rights in the country and so um you know, activists from around the state participated in that, including Buffalo and Rochester. And there's actually a um, famous photograph of Sylvia Rivera, who participated in in the Stonewall um, uprising and then the gay liberation movement in in New York City, um, holding a copy of the Empty Closet. And I think it might be the first um, issue of the Empty Closet that... That's so cool. That she's holding, but um, so so that's right coming out of the the gay rights movement in in Rochester, and the first um, gay rights group in, in Rochester was the Gay Liberation Front at the University of um, Rochester. So the the Gay Liberation Front is like a more um, radical. Uh, gay rights group that's emerging in the post-Stonewall period um, and activists from Buffalo um, the and, and so the, the gay rights group in um, Buffalo at that time is called the Mattachine Society of the Niagara Frontier and uh, members of the Gay Liberation Front from um, Cornell University in Ithaca come to talk at the University of Rochester and then um, the Rochester Gay Liberation Front is founded. And one of the things that I, I think is really interesting about Rochester gay history, and I don't know like 
uh, why this is or if it's just a um, coincidence or it's something about the, the nature of Rochester as a city or the gay community here. Um, but it's been like quite linear in the sense that the Gay Liberation Front of Rochester is founded in 1970. Um, that turns into, um, in 1973, the Gay Alliance of the Genesee Valley, which is now the Out Alliance. So there's been like one gay right, major gay rights organization that has like morphed to stay with the times and there's That's been like really cool. one one continuous publication the the empty closet so it would be interesting to like dig into why did the movement and the community in rochester evolve in that way whereas you know if you look at a lot of other um cities you know big cities um smaller cities it's often like more contentious than that, right? There's like this organization that's fighting with this organization or this organization like what I was lasts for a, yeah, a couple <laughs> years yeah. and then it dies and then there's this new organization. Um, for some reason, it seems to be like quite continuous and linear in, in Rochester. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I, would, I would say like we do have like other groups too, like Black Pride and stuff like that too, who have found... Um, kind of not found space in like the Out Alliance and stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, so there has been a little bit um, in the recent years, but that's so cool to like hear about. And I feel like as a queer person in Rochester, like I didn't know any of this. Like I'm like the empty right. closet. Like I want to look at that. Like that sounds so cool. So I don't know. I guess it's just interesting. And I just watched um, Tale of Tales of the City. And I know that's like... Um, I watched the newer version before the old version, but I'm starting the old version now. Um, and honestly, watching that, uh, I guess to give a little background, I don't know too much about it, but it's on Netflix and it's um, based in San Francisco. Do you know about it that you could give a better? Talk about your. Okay. So I literally wanted to move to San Francisco in a heartbeat. I was like, okay, I've been to San Francisco twice and I didn't really love it either times, but I never emerged myself into the queer community and just like seeing this community and like seeing like all these spaces where people, I don't know. I just felt like I wanted to be there. And I was like, like the history lesson that was in the show, like it went back mm -hmm. and like showed so much history and I just felt at home watching it. And I yeah. felt like n some nostalgia, which was weird because I don't have that with that. But like I felt this like pressure in my chest where I just like felt like this is where I need to be. And like these are my people. And like I just like felt yearning. like this. Yeah, like it felt so good. But I also felt this longing to be a part mm -hmm. of it. That's cool. Tales of the city. Mm -hmm. OK, you you messaged me about it, but. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because I remember when you went to San Francisco and I was like so excited for you. And then I was yeah. like, how was your trip? And what you said to me was, I didn't like it, to be honest. It was kind of stinky. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about that because you sent me all these things to do. And I like literally had maybe two hours of free time. And I ended up like hopping on like this tour bus. So like 
I didn't have a chance oh, to like go to the places. The San Francisco trip. Yeah, yeah for okay. my work. And it was like, it wasn't a pleasure trip. It was like a work trip. I totally remember you like gave me, you're like, oh my gosh, you're going to San Francisco. Do all these queer things. And I'm like, I want to do queer things. But I was like the only queer person in my group. So I was like, if I do this, I got to be alone. And I like have anxiety. So I'm like, uh, I did go to a restaurant alone, like for breakfast. And I'm like, why didn't I do this for other things? But I don't know. I just like felt lonely and I felt like I couldn't do it by myself. But if I could go back, I would totally do it differently. But it, San Francisco smelled terrible, but it also was like really hot at the time. Maybe it wasn't even that hot. It just smelled bad. I don't know. I'm sorry. That's, you don't, I don't know why you have to apologize. <laughs> like For your sense of smell. Right. <laughs> But, you know, San Francisco has, um, you know, long been associated with the LGBTQ community. Um, it starts out as like a frontier town. And because of that, right, because you have people um, kind of coming in and out, it has a really big um, vice district. So it, it was kind of always a, a city or a space that... Um, was more accommodating to different types of sexuality. But, um, you know, with Tales of the City, um, that started in the late 70s. Actually, I want to say 1976, but I could be wrong. Um, as like a serial um, in the San Francisco Chronicle written by Armistead Maupin, right? So he's like chronicling um, the... Uh, lives of these different characters that he comes up with that lives in San Francisco. Um, right. And it's so, so interesting that you felt that sense of like nostalgia and longing because where we live is like very different from San Francisco in terms mm -hmm. of the queer spaces that we have access to. But, you know, I think one of the uh, big themes of the the book series and also the the television show is this idea of like chosen family that we have to rate again like our families might not be able to give us our culture or we might be rejected by our families so we have to find a chosen family and in a mm -hmm. sense that might be um universal um as a queer experience but also more difficult to actually find than what the show portrays and I think that's where kind of my nostalgia came in because it's almost like when I was in college, I had this community around me and I felt like I had more connections to queer people. And like, and I know I've shared this a little bit, I guess, with Adrian. I don't know if I've ever shared it on here, but like I struggle to find queer connections in Rochester and like in general and like post-college and pre-college. Obviously, I didn't even know I was queer but pre-college, but I... I feel like this longing of wanting this community and these connections, but like they're just not there. And I feel like I'm like, there, there's just like the space that's empty when I look up, like when I look up, I don't see that access anywhere. Even though I know people are like, well, go to out, out Alliance events and go to this bar and go to this bar. Like, it's just, I struggle with the idea of having to like work for it. You know, like I want to just like, have this community surrounding me just like Barbary Lane like they all live there and then they all love each other and they're all queer together and love you. I don't know so it's like that that does kind of give you that idea of chosen family it's just like hard I mean that was easy easily accessible for them but yeah I mean it's also kind of hard because like we obviously we don't live close to each other but like we also 
a lot of the people that I've met, we have a lot of differences. Like we're not all the same. And so like trying to have conversations sometimes is so hard. And a lot of times I've found that like when I do go to these events and I try to have conversations with these people, I it's either they don't believe I'm trans and they think I'm a cis guy who's in a straight relationship because we pass so well that they don't want to try um, to have a relationship with me. And so like that's where it gets really hard and tricky. And so then I don't want to try f like with them either. Um, so it's like this, this struggle of so much pressure to create this relationship that I don't have enough spoons to create that relationship. So it, you know, everybody just kind of like puts in the towel and then there's not enough community. But also like the fact that I guess at my experience, like I do quote unquote pass as a cis straight person. And like, I feel like I have to prove myself to be in the queer community. I have to prove that I'm part of it. So it's like, I don't, like, do you need, like, a specific look to be a part of this community? Do you need... And, like, I know that's not true, but it's, like, that that fear inside tells you that. Like, I don't look queer enough. Kind of, like, the queer... The um, the pride bodies and stuff. And I'm even, like, yeah. this whole week, I'm, like, what am I going to wear to pride? Even before you got here, I was, like, we got to go thrifting because I need something for pride. Like, I need... And I, I feel that pressure to have to perform my identity which I will, I want to do every day, but I feel, I don't feel safe doing that right now. So it's mm. like, I don't know how to be me, which is inherently like queer and non-binary and all the things. But like, I, people don't see that because I hide it because it's, it's scary. So it's like, how do you be, how are you going to be a part of a community that you're, you don't like even feel at home with in your own s I don't know what I'm trying yeah. to say no but if I that's making sense yeah um it's it's at least making sense to me just because um you you said that you have to perform your identity and I think that's so like sad but beautiful you know what I mean because I like I said before I don't feel super welcome at pride and I don't feel um super welcome at like uh most like LGBTQ plus um places or with most people who identify um as such and it's just because I feel like I do have to perform or like I have to like I've got to be queerer or like my queerness is not valid because it's not enough or because like because I'm wearing a skirt today or because I'm I have makeup on um and these typically like feminine things um invalidate my queerness in those spaces and like that's the my that's my perspective on it you know what i mean so like you're not you're not alone in feeling that it's unfortunate that right, so we have um a hierarchy in society in general mm -hmm. that oppresses people on the basis of gender and sexuality but then we have like a separate hierarchy within the community yeah. and, and you know how, how both of you are, are talking about um, or all of you are talking about how um, people see you and perceive you in a certain way and label you and then without even getting to know you make an assumption about your I don't know level of queerness shall we say and therefore yeah. to what extent <laughs> you fit into the community and are you know placing you 
somewhere in that um, that hierarchy without you know genuinely getting to to know people. I feel like a lot of it does actually tie back to history and how how often we we get queer history because even if you look at like um, if you look at how high school like sex ed is taught, it's gay, straight lesbian like those are your options boo and move forward um and there's not a whole lot of representation for things in between all of that so if you don't fall into one of those three categories then you don't fall anywhere and you just fall through the cracks yeah i feel like this idea like you see people's identities people are like so obsessed with that so like but like also gender is a performance it really is like you are you're expressing yourself in a certain way but Mm -hmm. it's like how accessible is performing your gender all the time like for you to be safe and for you you know and i feel like i guess what i struggle with with the queer community in general is like i or just in general in life like i feel like in non-queer spaces I don't feel welcome and like I don't not feel welcome in queer spaces I just feel like they're some of them aren't for me like I just like don't I don't know if I belong there either and I want to so badly and I know I do not I do not belong in non-queer spaces I know that but it's like it's been so long where I felt a part of a queer space and I guess that could be there I guess I immediately want to like make the analogy that it's like walking into a church you know what I mean? Like, cool, I I want to join a church. Now which church is mine? You know, cool, I'm queer. Now which queer space is mine? And that's okay. I think that it's just um, without talking about where those queer spaces are and who's in them and, like, who, like, who they readily accept, quote, unquote, um, we don't we don't know so then we get stuck and then we don't go look and then it feels like work work to to find a space that fits us and it 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 is work right now unfortunately i think it's also sometimes difficult to recognize that if people are having an emotional reaction or a negative reaction to the way that you are doing your queerness that's not about your identity that's mm-hmm. about them and their identity and, and their experiences and their stigmas and yeah because yeah, i feel like then there is this pressure to oh if someone is having this like reaction right i need to change myself in order to fit in but it's not really about you it's about what's going on with that person that they're having um that type of response to the way that you're presenting your identity right right very little is actually about you (laughs) um but that's such a hard it's such a hard thing to grasp and like like i mean hannah and i are in our our late 20s you're in your early 20s and like we're, we're probably just starting to like grasp and utilize that idea but then you look at like kids teenagers and like people who are at the very beginning of their 20s and that's not even a concept for them so all they see is like that person doesn't accept me on a personal level not because they were raised to think xyz or because their community thinks xyz or because they didn't receive this education um but so i i really think it comes back to like 
it all comes back to like education and how visible people are um, from a from a young age too, like pre college. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know, and that uh, what you just said has me also thinking that um, there is a lot of research that talks about how um, as LGBTQ people we have different developmental milestones than mm-hmm. straight cis people because it's often the case that when we're younger we can't be who we are it's not safe to be who we are we haven't figured out who we are um yet and then we're doing some of that work later than our straight cisgender counterparts yeah that's it's very true it's a good point I guess I just I think this conversation is so important and I think it's super important perfect for Pride weekend um I just feel very like blessed to have information about queer history because it's really sad when you're a part of community and you don't even know your local history (laughs) I'm like we all got called out today um so it's like I don't know I just think it's so important to know history of ourselves and our and communities we're a part of and it's just a beautiful thing to talk about and share space with so thank you so much dr jeff for blessing us with your information yes thank you thanks for having me you're welcome so um if uh oh sorry adrian oh okay um (laughs) we want you to shout out your um instagram facebook wherever you want people to follow you or like where you write your articles stuff like that so people can uh, read my work on Medium, and I'm at uh, J-E-F-F-R-Y period um, I-O-V-A-N-N-O-N-E. Um, then you can also find me on Instagram, uh, and I'm Dr. Jeff Gender Prof, P-R-O-F. Very cool. Yay. Um, do you want to shout out your handles as well? Sure. Um, my personal Adrian's Instagram like, what's handle? handle? <laughs> 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 personal instagram handle is uh not too taboo amanda and you can find me on facebook at amanda drew um you can find me on instagram at uh transpiration transpirational healer yeah my mouth was not working just then um and then my facebook is just adrian gray gray with an e and you can find me at Hannah Gray on Facebook. It's public. Just follow me. It's fine. Um, and then stalk me, whatever you want to do. Um, and I don't know what don't I'm saying. Don't stalk anyone. Oh, I'm hot. So, and also on Instagram, I'm at Inclusively Hannah. And um, if you want to find us on Instagram, we're at Gray Awakenings. If you want to email us, if you're interested in being on our podcast or you have ideas or anything you want us to talk about, please email us at grayawakenings at gmail.com. And we love you so much. Thanks for supporting us. If you're listening on iTunes, please rate and review us five stars. Five please. stars. If it's anything less, don't bother. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, just rate as well. Also, if you have any feedback about any of our, our episodes or um, anything like that, please reach out to us. We love to hear reviews from or you. Or even topics that you do want to hear. Yeah, I said yeah, that. Yeah, we want okay. ideas. That's stress. Yeah, stressed because we want to hear what you want to hear. Um, but thank you all so much for your support and continued support. We love you so much, and we want to bring you the best information ever. Bye. Bye.